One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing, your podcast for all things Shakespeare. We have a very, very special episode today. So I invited my friend Emily Mayetta to join us again after we completed The Winter's Tale, all five acts. So first I want to reintroduce Emily. Hello, Emily. Welcome back. Hello, Tim. Thanks for having me back. My pleasure. You were so good. You're going to get lots of invitations going forward. And we are joined by some friends of yours and, and through you, some friends of mine, the Alvarado family in Fort Collins, Colorado. Hello, Alvarado family. Hello, Alvarado family. How are you guys? <laughs> so you guys are all going to meet up tomorrow, aren't you? Because tomorrow sure is Wednesday are. and you're going to have classes tomorrow at the Paideia School in Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, I will talk a little bit maybe later on about some times that I've visited uh, your school. And You'll be visiting soon. I will be visiting. And it's like, I think it's like two weeks now. I'm yeah. going to be out with you guys again. And we're going to do a Shakespeare showcase together, which I'm, I've worked with you guys before. And I like cannot wait. Apparently, Franny... Alvarado is getting to dress up like a frat boy for one of his her scenes, <laughs> which I'm really excited to see. Okay, but before we get ahead of ourselves, let's do this. Um, Sam, if you don't mind introducing yourself and let's go from you kind of like, let, for me, left to right across the screen. And if all of you will introduce yourself, tell me what grade you're in, if you're still in school. <laughs> and what your favorite Shakespeare character or play is. Does that sound good? Can we all do that? Yeah. Okay, Sam, let's start with you. Yeah. What grade, so, what grade are you in? Um, <laughs> maybe like grade 28. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> so my name is Sam Alvarado. And, oh, our dog is barking. 
Hey, it's just Hello, local dog. color. We love it. Hello, local color. We have a dog. Her name is Candy. She's white and fluffy and cute. She is not my favorite Shakespeare play or character, <laughs> but I, I really love Hamlet. That's a nice choice. Yeah. That's a nice choice. Um, Sam, what is your role at the Paideia School? Yeah, so Emily and I actually co-direct our school. Um, I am the director of what we call the School of Wonder, which is the younger elementary age school. And then I also teach some other, some classes for our upper school, um, history, literature, art and music history. Beautiful, beautiful. Classical school. We'll talk more about that a little bit later, maybe. Anthony, why don't you go next? Uh, so I'm Anthony. I was cut off, I think, at grade 16. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, my day job, I am a civil engineer. Mm. And I think my favorite play, it's probably one that I've seen the most in different forms, is Much Do About Nothing. Mm, great. Okay, who's next? Uh, I'm Rourke. I am in 12th grade. I'm 17. And uh, my favorite play is Hamlet. Mm-hmm. We loved it, Rourke. We loved he your great, Hamlet. He did a great <laughs> Hamlet monologue. Who's next? Um, my name is Lydia. I'm in 11th grade. And my favorite Shakespeare play is Macbeth. Macbeth. Ooh. There we go. We just read it together this year. Lydia, would you want to play Lady Macbeth? I think I would. Yeah, of course. Of course. Just because she's like murderous and vile doesn't mean that she's not a great character to act. She's a great character to act. <laughs> Who's next? Um, I'm Franny. I am 16 and I am in 10th grade. And my favorite play is also Macbeth. Mm -hmm. Very good. My name is Esther. I'm in eighth grade. And I think one of my favorite plays is As You Like It. Oh, fun. As You Like It. Really fun. <laughs> That's kind of a deeper cut, Esther. Not everyone knows As You Like It, but it's a really, really good play. Uh, who's, who's next? <laughs> I'm Zinnia. I'm 14 years old. I'm in eighth grade. And my favorite play is also Macbeth. Wow. Three Macbeths. Three Macbeths. Amazing. Um, there's something unique about your family, Sam. We talked about it briefly off the air. Do you want to, do you want to mention it before we start getting into the Q and A's? Yeah. Well, so we appreciate the plays with twins Uh huh. because Lydia and Franny are twins and Zinnia and Esther are twins. We have, have two sets two of twins. sets of twins <laughs> in one family. It's amazing. It's amazing. So have you guys ever considered like you are basically born to be a traveling Shakespeare troupe? <laughs> right? You can do all the twins plays. All of them. All of them. There's like, I don't know how many there are, but yeah, you could, you could do all of them. Many. Okay. We, we let's start I, I think the more daunting thing is we have five teenagers we so. do have five teenagers <laughs> that is pretty daunting it's pretty fun though teenagers are great <laughs> dressing up like frat boys crushing beer cans on their forehead <laughs> okay Zinnia I want to um, I want you to ask the first question and the rest of you be thinking about who's going next in fact Sam why don't you just 
tell us who's going next after Zinnia asks her first question. Zinnia, go right ahead. Okay. So I was wondering what are three common themes that you see a lot of in Shakespeare's work? It's a pretty erudite question. It's a great it? question. <laughs> yeah. It's a great question. Um, so I think that the, that the answer is kind of divided according to genre. So I think that he has certain things that he loves when he's writing comedies and different things that he loves when he's writing tragedies. Um, and different things still when he's writing histories, wouldn't you say? I know. Yeah, I so would Even say. the histories. So what are the, th- Emily, I'm putting you on the spot. What are the things that you think are like common to the histories? Ooh, the histories. Um, I'm going to say things common to the histories are really a concern with the right rule of the kingdom and what it means to be a ruler. Don't you think? I think his histories are really investigating that the King series, all the Henry's, the Richards, uh, Julius Caesar. Yep. Yep. What else? Antony, Antony and Cleopatra maybe is slightly different from that. But, but Emily, to your point, I think you would have an easier time. No, I'm going to say it the other way. I think you'd have a harder time finding plays that are not kind of preoccupied with kingly rule or with the, like the, you know, what happens when power, political power goes awry. It would be easier to find plays that do than plays that don't. I think almost every single play is dealing in some way with what happens when a king, um, when something goes wrong inside of a king, mm-hmm. almost every single play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe that one kind of like transcends mm-hmm. all, genres. all genres. Yeah. Right, so let's right. talk about what are the themes that show up in comedies. I've got one. I've got one. Okay. Go I first? hope they're not the same one. Okay. You go first. <laughs> love You're the host. First sight. Oh, love that's not what I was going to say. First, oh, good. Love at first sight. Oh my gosh. Nobody falls in love, Zinnia, in a Shakespeare play unless it's like immediate and just like torrential. <laughs> You know, like Romeo and Juliet, they see each other across the room. Oh my gosh, I am in love. And it's that way for every single comedy. It really is. You think that's true of Benedict and Beatrice? Yeah. Well, I think they're in love from the get go and they're just just pretending to be in hate. Yeah. That's what I think. But. I was going to say that in the comedies, um, the main character's folly is revealed through embarrassing situations, but Mm. not as in the tragedies where it's revealed by tragic consequences. So there's like there's a there's a um, embarrassment factor to bring the comedic and like Benedict is a great example of that. Right. He thinks he's so self-contained in um, much, much ado. And then it's really shown that he's not, but it's usually through embarrassment rather than like the blindness of unseeing in tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, I'll say one theme for tragedies. Death. It's insightful. That's insightful, Emily. It's super insightful. That's why I get paid lots of money for this show. Death. Do it again. (laughs) Give another one. Got to give another one. Um, I would say 
the fool is often in the smartest person in the play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fool is the revealer. Yeah, the fool is the revealer. Or or just the the one anyone who is on the outsides of power. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? That's that's well said. Like in in Winter's Tale, Paulina is that person. Yeah. She doesn't right. hold a formal place of power. Yeah, she's not a clown, but she is not like holding the scepter of authority. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, she is re- she is made fun of for her lack of stature in some ways, right? Yeah. Leontes makes fun of her. You got one more for us, Emily? Um, for comedy or for tragedy? Well, how about for comedy, marriage? Oh, yeah, marriage. Marriage, right? They always yeah. end in marriages. There's, um, there's one that I think there's one that doesn't. Do you oh, know what it is? One comedy that doesn't end in a marriage. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. A straight comedy or is it a problem? Nah, it's probably a problem comedy. <laughs> it doesn't follow the rule. It doesn't follow the rule. Um, 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 oh, is it? Is it um, Twelfth Night or no? No. There's marriage. Hmm. I don't know. You tell me. Measure for measure. Oh, measure for measure. Isabella, the nun. So, if you guys on. remember, Isabella does not marry the Duke in the end. But it's is that a left- comedy? Yes, it's grouped among the comedies. Oh, how dare you! <laughs> <laughs> It is very, it's a very serious play, but yeah, I think it's like safely ensconced under comedy. Okay. Yeah. It's just, the whole thing is so darn serious. Yeah. It's so serious. Yeah. Um, How about another thing? Oh, it just left me. Another thing for comedy. Oh, disguises. Oh yeah. Right? The the need for right. disguise is That's always a, great a one. theme. Yeah. That's a great one. Especially with, with a lot of them, but um, especially in the comedies. There's a lot of the twin plays, right? Like comedy of errors and stuff that it's um, related to disguise. Zinnia, did we miss any? Are there any (laughs) themes that we missed? I think you're good. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. It was a good question. Who's next? I think Esther's question is a great follow-up to this. I love it. Esther, what you got? Um, Okay. My question is, did Shakespeare prefer writing tragedy or comedy better? And like, why did he prefer it's another great question. I am going to give it first shot, Emily. I, I don't sh- want to answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> the short answer I- is we don't know. We just do not know. We don't have, we don't, we, we know so little about um, Shakespeare's life that most of what we surmise about his life is taken. We kind of read between the lines of his plays If that is the case, and that's the only kind of historical evidence that we have, (laughs) you're going to laugh at me when I say this. I think he preferred tragedies because that's the high water mark of his work. (laughs) Right? But but he doesn't write them at the end, right? Don't they all come earlier in his career? They are, if there's kind of like four major periods, it's the penultimate period. It's second to last. Yeah. And so he ends with the romances or... Yeah, the fantasies. The yep. fantasies, whatever. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Maybe sometimes it's like this with creators, like they are, you know, artistic people. The things that they're best at are not actually always the things that they love the most. Yeah, right. That's so true. Don't you think that that's yeah. true? The things that they're recognized for are not always the things that they 
this is total speculation. <laughs> this is total <laughs> speculation. But I mean, I think you find that in all artistic pursuits that often that's the case. But you're kind of leaning toward the thing that he did last is the thing that he did best and liked the most. That's what you're arguing, Mrs. No, no, Mayetta. No. no, 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 no. I'm not saying it's his best because I like the tragedies the best too. I'm just saying maybe he found more joy in those because why did he leave off? You know, I think he was done with tragedy. Don't you think he was done? Esther, what we have here is Mrs. Maeda. <laughs> this is Mrs. Maeda arguing from chronology and me arguing arguing from quantity. She's arguing from chrono- chronology. I'm arguing from quality. And Esther, you, you get to make the choice about whose answer do you think is stronger? Oh my gosh, Esther. You don't have to do it right now. I'm just kidding. I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> okay, Esther's who's, who's the asking? nicest girl <laughs> to make her pick and torture. No, I won't. I won't. <laughs> okay, who's next? Who's next? This well, is too much fun. It is so fun. Okay, so we talked about tragedy and comedy. So I think that Rourke's question actually is a great next one. Great. So my question is, um, for historical plays, how accurate are they? So like... <laughs> which plays are like based on true story and which ones are, you know, inspired by a true story. (laughs) It is, it's, this one I think is a little bit easier to answer than Esther's. So I would say that his history plays, they're all, how do I say this? Yeah. How are you going to say this? The basic, (laughs) I would say the high points of the historical story that he's telling tend, he tends to kind of stick with those, Mm -hmm. but he will do everything around those high points to make the play better. For example, what are the high points in Julius Caesar? We know that Julius Caesar was ambitious, a major theme in the play. You know, he was, if ever there was someone who was ambitious from history, it was Julius Caesar. We know that he and Brutus seemed like they had a personal relationship. They were friends. We know that Cassius was also friends with Brutus. We know that they conspired with several others to kill Julius Caesar. We know that a civil war ensued. So that's what I mean, like the high points of the historical story. Now, did the things that happened in the play happen in the order that they happened? No, no, you know, and was Cassius like kind of like a kind of a sniveling, you know, backstabber? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't really know, but boy, it really works well in the play. (laughs) Was Brutus like really dignified and stoic? I think we have historical evidence that he had a stoic code. Yeah. Yeah. But was he like this sort of dignified person? Maybe, but Mm -hmm. Shakespeare was kind of like speculating a little bit. Emily, what Mm -hmm. do you, what do you, what would you add? Well, I was going to say for, I think that's really important for the, like even the more ancient histories, but for like his Henry plays and for his Richard plays, he's also really concerned with, um, or I mean, there is a concern with keeping the royal family happy, right? So there's a lot of speculation with Richard III that um, just like you said, while the major events definitely happened, he he puts a really... um, 
horrible aspect on Richard III, which some historians dispute. Was Richard III really hunchbacked and had a lame arm? Like, But that is how everybody thinks about Richard III now because of the power of that play, right? I mean, I think that there's a lot of contention about that. Were the boys murdered in the tower? Yes, they were. Was it Richard? I mean, I think that there's still some dispute. They're not sure that it was Richard, but so... Yeah, he was accurate to that, but he was also interested in, you know, keeping the ruling family, the Henrys and his descendants, Elizabeth and James, pleased as well. Right. He wasn't yeah. going to do something right. that cast them in a bad light. I I'm, um, memorized Richard III, the opening monologue. I love that opening monologue. It's so beautiful. Rourke, do you know that one? Yeah. You know the opening line, I bet. We haven't done Richard III. We need to do Richard III. I wonder if we should, you know. Now is the dawning of our discontent. Come on. Now is the, yeah. Now is, oh my gosh. Now is the. It's the dawning of our discontent. No, no, no. It's not dawning. It's not dawning. Now is the winter of our discontent. Now is the winter. Sorry. (laughs) And he has these great lines. (laughs) But I that am not shaped for such sportive tricks, nor made to court the amorous looking glass. I that am rudely stamped Mm -hmm. and want love's majesty to strut before a wanton ambling nymph. It's so good, Rourke. It's so good. (laughs) But Okay. One of the things, and we're going to go to the next question. They dug up Richard III's they bones sure did. to find out just sure how did. like accurate or inaccurate Shakespeare's story <laughs> was. And they found out that, in fact, he did have a slightly crooked spine, but he was not. Shakespeare made he him was out not to be the like a gargoyle or something like this. With a that deformed was not arm. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah. Okay, who's next? Um, Anthony had a question about actors. Oh, yeah. Oh, so when Shakespeare wrote his plays and they started to perform them, why weren't there any female actors? Emily, do you want to tackle this one? Sure. I mean, it was viewed as immodest for women to be put in such a position, right? Women didn't perform anything. Um, I have this from the world of music. Shall I talk about that? Yeah. (laughs) Because, (laughs) you know operas, all of those sorts of things. Um, Women never performed the high roles. And so the means now in acting, I think, Tim, they would just have prepubescent boys or boys who hadn't gone through puberty. And then if you did, you no longer got to play the female roles. That was a really interesting piece in your life of Shakespeare, where you talked about um, some of the plays that you think were written with really strong female roles. Tim, you talked about that. Yeah. Um, because they think that there was a really great actor at that time who could, a young man who could play it. But in the world of music, um, they made eunuchs of young boys, boys who had really good voices and that kept their voices from changing. And they would sing um, all the soprano roles. It was a, it was male voices that were singing all the high roles. Mm. There are the Baroque operas of particularly Handel, I think there's an opera about Nero and Nero is a soprano. Nero's part is a soprano. Really? Yes. (laughs) That's weird. It's so weird. But I mean, one of the interesting things in music is that the the buffoon role was always played by a bass or a baritone. The low voice was considered like a buffoonish voice. And so it was prized. Hmm. I mean, that's anyway. 
but it was unseemly for women to be performing. But do we know why, Emily? Do we know why it was considered unseemly? Um, I don't know. I mean, just the the moral standards of the time, right? Women, like the honor right. of a woman was very important. She was never to be put in yeah. a compromised situation. But um, women did not perform in anything stage related. Hmm. I don't know. That's you have so more interesting to because he honors women a lot within his plays. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's so... I, don't, I would say like ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. And then you have funny things like in As You Like It, where you have a boy who's playing Rosalind. Right. So he's dressed <laughs> up as a girl. Right. And then she's dressed up as a boy. Right. <laughs> right. I would so. just think if you're actually seeing that, like it's it's a little bit confusing when we see, you know, a woman playing a woman dressing as a man. It's a little bit confusing, but to see like a man <laughs> purporting to be a woman dressing as a man, you know, like to woo Wait, a woman. Which, it's like, it's who so, are you? What is going on? What who universe are, are we living in? <laughs> okay. Um, great answer. Next question. All right, Lydia, why don't you ask yours? My question is, did Shakespeare model people model his characters after people in real life or like people in his life? Emily. No, Tim, that's your question. Oh, it is. <laughs> oh, is. You've read all the, the Shakespeare biographies recently. Because he was an author, surely he did. Yeah, surely. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is a rumor. So Lydia, there's a kind of famous letter that was written by a guy named Robert Green. And he wrote it. It's the first piece of evidence that we have that William Shakespeare was living in London and that he was like in his 20s and he was writing plays. And this guy, Robert Greene, was like super academic and kind of snooty. And he wrote, his, he wrote this little pamphlet and he was like, this upstart crow who has no learning in Greek and he knows no Latin. Well, he is like assaulting our stage and he's like really petty about it is Robert Greene. And the story is that Shakespeare kind of got him back and he put Robert Greene up on stage. (laughs) And I, if I, if my memory serves, he, um, Robert Greene was the model for, um, Oh, what's his name? The Henry the Fourth plays the big outlandish character that everybody loves, John Falstaff. Oh, Falstaff. I th- if I think that's right, don't quote me on that. Like someone is like screaming at the podcast right now. <laughs> not, it was not Falstaff. So I'm I'm like relying on my memory, which is notably faulty. But so the short version is Lydia. Yeah, he probably did, and we've got a little bit of evidence. But like so many things from his life, we just have to speculate, which. We're not afraid to do on this show. We're not afraid to speculate on this show. <laughs> okay, um, let's go to the next question. Franny, you should ask your question. Um, my question is, who was Shakespeare most influenced by and who mm. did Shakespeare influence most? Mm-hmm. Go, Tim, go. Um, With all these I'm getting all the hard questions. <laughs> I'm getting all that's the hard questions. That's the privilege of being the host of the show. Yeah. <laughs> I think that he... 
I know that Christopher Marlowe was influential upon him. Christopher Marlowe was was like a contemporary of his, and apparently they were friends. And Christopher Marlowe was also a very, very fine playwright. He wrote a Faustus, a famous Faustus. Um, so I would say probably Marlowe. Ah, it was that his biggest influence. I don't know. I really don't know. I will say that, that he um took almost every single plot except for midsummer night's dream almost every single plot he took from some book somewhere else and he loved especially two historians one named holland shed and another who i bet you guys read even today at the paideia school okay let's mm-hmm. see if we can tease it out of you he was a Actually, I think he was a Greek writing during the Roman Empire, and he they used know. to write parallel lives. Do you guys know who gets like super bonus, like gold star points? Petrarch. Close, very, very, very close. Plutarch. Plutarch. Very close Plutarch. in the pronunciation. Plutarch. Plutarch. Exactly. Plutarch. But he loved Plutarch. But Petrarch is also an influence. And he borrows Petrarch's, the Italian um, playwright and poet. Hmm. He does borrow from Petrarch's stories as well. So you got two in one. That was really good. <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> now is a great moment to insert that the Paideia School is a classical school. And that this podcast is platformed by the Circe Institute, which is an organization that's all about kind of like leading the charge, the renewal toward the Christian classical, toward a Christian classical education. And for me, the biggest endorsement that I can give for that mode of education is this family. (laughs) I'm serious. Like, you know what I mean? Like you hear these questions like, and you, and you know, like the joy in everybody's voice and like the real incredible learning. And I'm just like, what else do you need to know? What else do you need to know? Go to circeinstitute.org. C-I-R-C-E institute.org. Thank you for the commercial that is your family. The commercial for class. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> hey, we should finish the rest of that question. Who he influenced. Oh, yeah. I mean, who did he influence? Let's just say everybody in the English language yeah. after him. Shall <laughs> yeah. we say that? Okay, for sure. <laughs> I, my friend Chris and I were talking the other day and we came, we were thinking about this phrase. Do you know the phrase beyond the pale? Oh yeah. You ever heard the phrase beyond yes. the pale? Okay. Yes. Chris yes. Is like, and I know the derivation. Oh, d- so do I. Okay. Chris is like, Chris is like, where does beyond the pale come from? And I was like, you know what, buddy? It came like, I'm just going to play the odds. It either came from the King James version of the Bible or it came from Shakespeare because oh. almost every phrase, I'm exaggerating almost every phrase, so many phrases that we use in everyday mm-hmm. speech were found in one of those two sources, a total sidebar. The King James Bible and Shakespeare were basically contemporaries. And there's even a yes. rumor that Shakespeare right. translated one of the Psalms and smuggled his name, Shakespeare, into one of the Psalms. It's probably not true. 
because he didn't. He, like, there's no evidence that he spoke Hebrew, which he would have. He would have had to speak Hebrew or to be able to translate yeah. Hebrew. So it's probably unlikely, but it's just a fun story. Okay, um, and I have one more thing to add after you, Emily, about who he influenced. Oh, after me. I mean, if you, I, I don't have a great um, list because you can't, you, you can't, you can think of no one in the English language who was not influenced, right? right? It right. just permeates everything. And so many people, I think a common phrase, what uh, you read the Bible to know what God, what God thinks about the world. And you read Shakespeare to understand how men think about the world. Oh, right? I mean, isn't that, yeah. I, yeah, that's passed around a lot that like, you just need those two things basically. And you'll be kind of set, which of course yeah. we need, we want more than that, but, but a good <laughs> argument can be made that he is just so insightful into the ways of men. Okay. I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask the Alvarado family a question again. That's going to set up my answer. Okay. <laughs> I'm looking for a genre of poetry that kind of occurs contemporaneously with the enlightenment. And many of these poems are, many of these poets are British, though there are poets that belong to this genre that are in Western Europe at the time. So think enlightenment and think about like the poetic reaction against the enlightenment. I'm going to give you one name, Rousseau. Wait, what are you what are you looking for as a as a writer that belongs to this oh. genre L Lydia Lydia knows romanticism oh my gosh exactly <laughs> exactly see the romantics were super duper super influenced by Shakespeare there's there's one comment I would take one Shakespeare for 10,000 scientists or something like this. You know, they're just like, because he's full of life and passion and the scientists are so cold and dead. I mean, it's like, you know. So he was really, really influential on the romantic poets. We Let's just did do... a whole series of, we just did a whole um, unit on romantic poetry. Well so done. True. And Lydia got it. Well done, Lydia. Who's next? <laughs> Well, so I have a question. My experience with Shakespeare, my initial experience was not great. I think I told you once, Tim, that uh, my experience was akin to a dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> Can you walk us through like what made it so bad? Um, I think it was so rushed. Mm. Um, my teacher loved Shakespeare, mm. but it sort of turned into her commentary and then picking apart the plays that were just picking it all apart, looking for just missing the point. Mm. So it was a lot of, oh, what what is the true, mm. is this character good or bad and not good or bad. Uh, what's the word I want to say? We spent a lot of time talking about if characters were gay or not, uh -huh, uh -huh. which was just not good, right? Like that's not the point. Yeah. And it's so, beside the point. You know, all of those kinds of things. So it was really rushed and um, I just had a really bad taste. Like it made yeah. me feel uncomfortable. I was really confused all the time. Um, and then I just was like, well, this is, 
not worth, you know, everybody thinks Shakespeare is so cool just because he's Shakespeare. I don't think right. he's really that great. Right. Mm-hmm. So there has been a redeeming of my own education and my own loves. And, um, you know, in recent years, I've been like, you know, I want to love Shakespeare. I want to love it because I recognize my hesitation with Shakespeare is more about me than about the worth of Shakespeare. Mm. So my question is for those of us who have had a not so great introduction to Shakespeare, what are a couple of plays, two or three plays that could win us back? And how should we interact with those plays? Should we read them? Should we watch a play? Should we watch a film adaptation? How can we restore Shakespeare to those of us that just didn't have a great first experience? This is one of those questions, like sometimes I will be going to sleep at night and I'll think, I wish someone would ask me a question like the one that I just got asked. That Sam just asked. It's so silly. And then like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, like things that you're like yeah. super passionate about that you care yeah. about so deeply. And you're like, I wish some stranger on the bus would sit down next to me. Yeah. Like, why should I, how could I get involved more with Shakespeare? Tell me how. <laughs> and in my little kind of waking dream, I roll out with this like really eloquent answer. And the guy <laughs> leaps off the bus and he joins a traveling Shakespeare troupe. And he's, troop changed. And he's <laughs> changed forever. Rainbows kind of like float <laughs> off him. It's amazing. <laughs> Um, I will give one answer and then Emily, I would love to hear if you were going to kind of pick a play that would introduce Shakespeare, what would it be? Um, I'm going to say Julius Caesar because I think it's the simplest language in Shakespeare's canon. Interesting. Um, I think that the monologues are like Mark Antony has two monologues in there that belong in like the all time writing of the entire world. As far as I'm concerned, they're just incredible. Friends. Um, Rourke did one. Rourke did one of the, I'm doing one of the Mark Antony. Say it again. I'm doing the other one this year. No way. No way. You're going to be the master of those two incredible. <laughs> That's so great. So, Okay, and the other thing that I would say, and I'm just going to totally plug myself here, I am such (laughs) a big believer in performing Shakespeare, no matter like just finding a setting in which you can memorize and speak one of the monologues. And so if that means sitting at the table with your family or sitting at the table with your friends and being like, you know what, you guys? I've been working on Richard the third and I, would you guys mind if I just like tried to articulate this because the preparation to do that monologue will change how you think about Shakespeare's words. It'll cause you have to dwell for a long, slow period in those words. And you'll see like, this is a master at work. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would say, Emily, do well, you have a play? I, do I have a play? It's hard to answer a play. I think. But I think what Sam said is really indicative when Shakespeare is treated as a literary artifact and then picked Mm -hmm. apart like that, you're not coming into contact with the art form itself. So it seems to me that it could happen with almost any play if you are in the presence of a great work of art. Do you know what I mean? So if you're at a play 
Or if you see a really fine movie adaptation, I was just thinking for myself, the thing that changed me in Shakespeare was Henry V. I mean, mm. come on, that's pretty opaque oh, and it's a not an easy hard play, to understand. I mean, who would have thought that a 13-year-old would respond so strong? I mean, I just, I just remember seeing it and thinking, I have to be in that. Like, mm. I have to be in that experience because it was so amazing. He meant what he said and he knew what he said. And it was, it was revealing, even though like the language was really opaque to me even then, but I had an experience with the art. And don't you think, Tim, this is your big thing. Like you have to come in contact with the art. Yeah. So it is like, I think that is often the trouble when people have bad experiences. It's because they've been reading it and it's really hard to understand. And then they go to a class and then they're not, they're not experiencing the wonder of it. They're not experiencing how fun it is to say the words, yeah. even if you don't understand them. Absolutely. It's still fun to say it, even if you can't understand. Absolutely. And then they're not um, experiencing the amazing reality of dwelling within his words, which you mm -hmm. have to have by way of either. I mean, I think it can happen in a movie adaptation. I mean, the, the movie, it was Henry V with Kenneth Branagh in the movie theater. And I just... Yeah. I couldn't like get it out of my head. I had to be in it. Totally. So I don't know. I mean, I think it can happen with anything if you come into contact with the thing itself. Don't you think? I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I, I had the same one with Richard III. Richard III is also incredibly hard, but we saw this amazing actor who just mm. brought it to life. Changes everything. Changes everything. One plug for a movie to see, if you can find it, is... Hamlet with Andrew Scott starring as the lead role. Andrew Scott is a contemporary 100%. Irish. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Hey, Unbelievable. I've been trying to organize this for our, I've been trying to organize this for our high school students because I'm like, <laughs> this is unbelievable. We have to watch it together. Yeah. <laughs> Got to watch it together. It, thank you, Tim, for telling yeah. us about it. Andrew Scott, Hamlet. Okay. Next question. Um, Where do we go from there? <laughs> <laughs> well okay franny and leah both they sort of were asking a similar question that i thought was very interesting and so i don't know who wants to ask it <laughs> go for it franny. or you could ask it together since you're twins yeah <laughs> <laughs> lydia you do the first um part and then franny you do the second part um was shakespeare religious and how did it impact his plays? <laughs> oh, that's my half. Sure. <laughs> Franny, you can share your half. Oh. Um, and then what did the church think of Shakespeare? Okay. Mm. These are mm. so exciting. <laughs> Lydia, no, they really, really are. Um, Lydia, the question of whether or not Shakespeare was religious and what kind of religious, namely Catholic or Protestant, more ink has been spilled in more books over that question than almost any question like ever. So um, just to kind of place this in history, Henry VIII, can you guys tell me who Henry VIII is? You like brilliant Alvarado family. Somebody tell me what happened with Henry VIII specifically with regards to the question of Catholicism. You guys are acting all shy. You know the answer. You know the answer. the guy who uh, split the 
uh, the English church from the Catholic church. Exactly. Exactly. Rokin, do you remember why? Uh, so he could divorce his wife. Exactly. <laughs> For inauspicious reasons. Well, yeah, <laughs> right. So he starts the church of England and so the Church of England has, or excuse me, England kind of has during Shakespeare's time, it's going back and forth between different rulers that have different allegiances. This king would have, or this queen would have an allegiance to the Catholic Church. The next one would be a Protestant. The next would be a Catholic. So they're going back and forth. So in Shakespeare's time, if you cross the wrong people at the wrong time on the question of like, what church do I belong to? You could be in massive trouble. But I think during Shakespeare's day, it was especially dangerous to be Catholic. Mm -hmm. Now we do, despite having very little evidence about a lot of things about Shakespeare's life, we do have pretty firm evidence that we're pretty sure that his dad was Catholic. Mm. Pretty sure. Like it can even, even that could be argued, but, um, that's the short version of if we were to make, if I'm not going to say we, I would make my speculation be that if Shakespeare was, if he was affiliated religiously, he was probably Catholic. Now, again, you could meet somebody else and be like, what are you talking about? He was a Protestant. Here's all the evidence. <laughs> you know, um, that's the best that I can do based on the, the reading that I have done. So, um, Emily, do you have anything to add to that? I don't. I believe that there's um, a lot of speculation that there's like secret Catholic messages in his writing. Yes. Yeah. Am I, am I correct in this? You're correct. There's lots of speculation. <laughs> lots of those speculation. Lines. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing that I would add, okay, just to hold on, and this might, you might be like, oh my gosh, Mr. Mack, why are you conti- why are you talking about this? You answered the question. Um, the Catholic Church was very friendly toward public performance, like in the year, in like kind of like the generation before theater really began to cook in downtown London. So they would do morality plays oftentimes within churches. So what's a morality play? A morality play would be for us, the closest thing that we could kind of come up with would be something like Pilgrim's Progress. Do you guys know Pilgrim's Progress? Yeah, we do. So give me like a couple of characters names from Pilgrim's Progress. Aside from Christian. (laughs) Christian. Christian. Who else? Faithful is that? Faithful. Faithful. Evangelist. Any others? Hopeful. Mr. Worldly Wise. Yes. (laughs) So all of these characters, you know, faithful. Faithful is like not a real person the way that like Lady Macbeth is a real person, like a multidimensional character. Um, it's more just like a stand-in symbolic character for something that we would aspire to, faithfulness. And like Mr. Worldly Wise would be something that we should kind of stay away from. He's a symbol of something that we should stay away from. So a lot of the morality plays are kind of enactments of good lessons and good teachings. So, but during Shakespeare's time, um, those had fallen out of favor. And theaters had cropped up around London. Here's the kicker. The Protestants, for the most part, did not like, they did not like theater. 
they were like dens of vice and licentiousness. So they would shut them down from time to time. Uh, Emily. We should, we should qualify which Protestants, really the Puritans. Yeah, the Puritans. The, the yeah. Anglicans did not have a problem. That's right. With it, but that's the Puritans right. within the Church of England, those who were seeking to purify it, did not like it. That being said, and this is the conclusion that I'm going to give to this answer. Shakespeare was very much like belief would, would talk about the kind of like map of the universe, the cosmology of the universe that was medieval Catholic. So it was harmonious. It was organized. The planets would sing to each other. The stars like worshiped God in their glory. So Shakespeare will write about this, the end of um, Merchant of Venice, the last scene, this man and woman are kind of courting each other. And, and he's just so overwhelmed with kind of like the beauty of the natural world that he talks about how much harmony there is and how everything works together. And so in that way, he's very religious. He is like um, a member of a kind of world that is far distant from us. For us, it's all just sort of like atoms in the void. That's what, like the you know, that's what the universe is. But not Shakespeare's day. Okay, what if we did? How about two more questions? Two more questions. Um, well, Sam, have, have we heard question. from you? Yeah, I was about to say, yeah. have we heard from you? Well, I mean, aside from the dumpster fire experience. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it's being redeemed now mm. more of a garden and it's so much, it's so wonderful. So I have a quick question, which is what was the makeup of Shakespeare's audience? Were mm. was it commoners or was it mm -hmm. more upper middle class? Mm -hmm. um, who was going to his place? Emily, you want this one? Well, I mean, it's fun because you, it's similar to other performances also. I mean, they, they, the groundlings, right? They were the ones who got to stand down around the stage. And so much of Shakespeare's humor maybe is geared towards them, right? right? They're standing yeah. down there. Um, but I mean, it was a wide section. That's actually one of the interesting things about the theater, right? It was, a, it was a, it wasn't just one class. Right. It was right. a, it was a meeting point for many classes. Yeah. Um I talked to Tim about this when we did the family question and answer about our experience of the original practices play at the Colorado Shakespeare Festival. And the thing that was fun about that is you got sort of that feeling of the ribaldry that would happen probably down with the groundlings where like there's even back and forth between the audience and the actors. <laughs> but I mean, a lot has been made of that, the people standing around down by the stage, right? Down right with the actors. I guess that's who sticks out in my mind in the watching of Shakespeare. But they're performed at the court. I mean, they're performed for the right. kings and queens. So right. it's, it's I a cross-section. The, the closest analogy, and stick with me here, the closest analogy, I think, to the audiences at a Shakespeare play is probably a an NFL football game. I was going to say, you were going to say a professional sporting event. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. true. But it's I think true. it's true. The, it's there's true. one really big difference. And Emily said the groundlings would be the ones that would be closest to the stage and they would pay, they paid, get this, one penny mm -hmm. to get in the door. Now, 
what did one penny mean in that economy? I don't really know. It was not just like, you know, a penny today. I, maybe it was closer to whatever, $5 or something like that. But it was not expensive to get in and go and stand in the kind of pit right next to the stage. The thing though was you were standing the whole time. Yeah, and Shakespeare standing. wrote long plays, three-hour <laughs> yeah. plays. You're standing the whole time, right? But then like the NFL you have like these really expensive luxury boxes that are kind mm -hmm. of elevated, elevated up. And that's where your really well-to-do nobility would be. That's where the queen would be queen mm -hmm. Elizabeth, the first that's where James King James, the mm -hmm. King James Bible, when he attended plays, if he attended at the globe, he would attend in one of those luxury boxes. So the difference being in the NFL you have to be pretty wealthy to sit down close to the field, mm -hmm. not for Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. You would pay, you know, if you're willing to stand for three hours, you didn't have to pay that much. It's a really, it's a, maybe a sadness that we kind of don't, I mean, cause a football game, that's awesome. But the thing that's amazing about these plays is it was a way to process also things on a communal level, right? Yes. That like, it's yes. not quite available to us in the mm -hmm. same way was just talking to a friend who had a really horrible experience at the school that she teaches at. And she was lamenting, there's no way for us to process this grief. Mm. And, you know, you think about the tragedies and even the comedies and the histories, like there is a communal experience when that's all happening together. Yeah. It uh, brings societal, there's an element of societal cohesion that comes out of something like that. For sure. Shared experiences, you know? For sure. Yeah. Let's do one more question. All right. I think Anthony has a good one that relates to our family's experience with yeah. Shakespeare and why we love it. So I think you should ask. Yeah. Yours. So I think Shakespeare has been really a, a deeply positive experience for our kids and for our, our home. Um, and I know I've seen it just tease out different things in them. And I don't want to single any of them out um, individually. Um, it's, it's also been amazing for me to watch them. I feel like it's elevated my appreciation of Shakespeare, just watching them do it. Um, but it's been wild, right? We have a spectrum, obviously, of personalities among our kids, introverts, extroverts, right? Like not any one of them are the, you know, two of them are the same, even our twins, right? They're, they're practically mm -hmm. opposites. <laughs> so um, with that, right, why, um, or would you, or could you make the case that it's essential for mm. students mm. to experience Shakespeare and to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So a parent is sitting in front of you maybe, and they're like, well, my child does not really want to do this. What, what, how would you persuade them mm -hmm. and to help persuade their child to partake? Okay, it's another one of those great questions. Tim, it's your question. We're going to do it right now, Anthony. <laughs> what are, we are, we really are. Like, what are the things I'm going to ask you to like, say your like deepest, like, I don't know, hopes for your kids. What are the things that you want the most for your kids? That Like you're providing this kind of education for your kids because you want them to. Right. Be better humans to mm. love God and have their convictions worked out to, you know, live a, you know, full life. Right. Um, and know, a life that free, honors free persons, right. Yeah. Mm, mm. A life that honors humanity 
Mm. So for me, like William Shakespeare gives the greatest eloquence to that hope. And what's more, he puts that hope in the hardest and sharpest forms of conflict that human beings have ever been exposed to, mm-hmm. you know, like the worst megalomaniacs abusing people of goodness mm-hmm. and people of like strong spiritual conviction he puts them in the hardest possible circumstances mm. and sometimes they don't make it that's the scary mm. thing is sometimes the good guys don't win but oftentimes the the good guys do win and they get to live out that kind of pursuit of the kind of convictions that you want for your kids anthony that was a beautiful answer that was a really beautiful that was a beautiful that was a beautiful answer that anthony gave um, i'm not i'm not, I was not like just gloating over this <laughs> really awful gosh you guys that was what i just said it was really (laughs) um can i ask a follow-up question though and this is for um the kids all of you have acted in a shakespeare play correct okay now i'm gonna ask you a question and i want you to think of the answer but not to say it but i want you to hold on to the answer and when i come to you i want you to tell me what your answer was. Okay. So if before you acted in your first scene, I want to know how scared you were and 10 would be the most scared that you could be. And in one would be the lowest you could be. Okay. Does everybody have that number? Yeah. Okay. Zinni, since we started the show with you between one and 10, 10 being most scared. Uh, probably a seven or eight. <laughs> okay. Okay. Great. A seven or eight. Esther. I think like four or five. Okay. Franny. Uh, like an eight, nine. <laughs> eight, nine. Great. Okay. Lydia. Mine was a solid 10. <laughs> a solid 10. I love it. I love it. Rourke. Oh, I was also a solid 10. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now. This is a question also for your set, for all of you. I want you to tell me, um, are you introverted or extroverted? And I want you to say, like, if, t- if you say, I'm an introvert, and I want you to tell, give me a scale, like one to 10, maximum introvert, you know, minimum introvert. Uh, Zinnia, same question. Okay. I think I'm an extrovert, okay. probably six. Okay. Okay. Esther. I feel like I'm in the middle. Okay. I'm not really completely sure. Yeah. Yeah. You're still like, you're figuring out, or maybe you'll just like kind of land in the middle. Esther, I'm with you. I'm right in the middle. And people, anyway, no, I'm right in the middle. (laughs) I I have so much fun when I do the shake. It's Emily, you're shaking your head. It's so true. I am so introverted. I spend so much time by myself. It's so true. You don't know. You don't know me. (laughs) That's fighting words. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Esther is a mix. Um, Franny, let's go to you. Introvert, extrovert. I don't know. I think I'm more introverted. Yeah. And how, where are you on the scale? One to 10 introverted. Like, like three or two. Okay. 
Yeah. You're not like crazy introverted. You're just, yeah, you're three. Lydia. Oh, I have no idea. I feel like I'm like extroverted to five and introverted to five. So. <laughs> okay. So maybe a little bit like Esther. Yeah. Okay. Rourke. Uh, I think I'm like on the lower end of the extroverted scale. Yeah. Like a, like a three or four. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Um, I, th- I think that people tend to think it's extroverts who make good Shakespearean actors because they're outgoing and they tend to be more effusive and energetic. And I just want to say, I've seen all of your kids act. They're all really, really good. Mm-hmm. And regardless of introvert or extrovert, they're all really good. So all of this is kind of like a roundabout way of <laughs> Anthony, answering Anthony's question. Like I think having young people stand up on a stage in front of friends and family and strangers and articulate like this beautiful, poetic, rhetorically powerful um, language is preparation for like every kind of good pursuit in life. <laughs> I, I lead meetings at works at work all the time. And I honestly can say, I'll get, I'll sit down with like leadership from like a big nonprofit and I've got to lead the meeting. And I've been like, I've done Hamlet soliloquies. This is, <laughs> this is this easy. Is <laughs> this is so There's some truth to that. There's kind oh, of some truth so to that. True. You know what I mean, Emily? Oh, completely. And it's, And it's not just, I mean, that's just a huge beneficial aspect in itself, but that's not only it. It's also that they get to inhabit these words that have changed so many people's lives, right? Like the beauty of participating in it is so nourishing to the soul. Yeah. He asked if it was essential. I mean, I I thought it was essential before we really um, started developing our Shakespeare program with the help of Tim. But I feel, but but that was just because of my own experience with Shakespeare, but seeing children transform, I'm mm. kind of more convinced of it because really? just as you have said, it doesn't matter who the kid is. It doesn't yeah. matter if the kid is introverted. You don't have to be quote unquote, a natural actor to be changed by this experience. Totally. So I would say it's so important to a well-formed life to have experienced experienced it, not just to know about it, but to have experienced it. I mean, we have seen major changes in so many students through this experience. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it too. Um, you guys, this has been really, really delightful. I want to thank all of you. I feel like I'm friends with all of you because we've done Shakespeare plays together. I am friends with Sam and Anthony, but like, you know, all the Alvarado kids. I just feel like I um, got to know all of you because I've seen you perform and perform so well. And I can't wait to do it again in two weeks. Let me do a very quick plug for myself. I have a (laughs) Shakespeare website that's about like my approach to teaching Shakespeare. And it has free scenes, like the 40 greatest hits from Shakespeare's, what I think are like, you know, 40 of his greatest scenes downloadable for free. So if you want to try this at home, you want to like be, okay, I'm going to try this monologue that Tim recommends. Go to timteachesshakespeare.com, timteachesshakespeare.com. 
and you can find all sorts of things, including videos about how I like to teach, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, that's the end of my plug. I want to thank you all again. Can't wait to see you in two weeks. Emily, thank you so much for being part of this and also for being part of The Winter's Tale. It was so much fun. I enjoyed every minute of it. Yeah, me too. Okay, until next time, everybody, thank you so much. Bye, Tim. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.